welcome to the Unfair Podcast. Hello and welcome to the OMFIF podcast. My name is Taylor Pierce and I'm senior economist on OMFIF's research team. Here with me today is Dr. Max Costelli, head of strategy and sovereign institutions at UBS Asset Management and Philman Salman, also on the team at UBS. We'll be discussing liquidity and financial markets today and the implications for investors. Given the exogenous shocks to the macroeconomy we've seen over the past years, in addition to the continued rate hikes and the roll off of major central banks balance sheets, Maintaining liquidity in these conditions is certainly something investors are worried about. And this is something that UBS has been working on. So Max, I want to come to you first. In your upcoming paper, you put liquidity under the radar screen. Why is liquidity an important topic for investors right now? Thank you very much. And once again, glad to be here in another podcast of OMFIF. The background of the paper is that, as you know, every year we carry out a survey of, uh, in particular, central banks. But I would say that the some of the main takeaway from the survey are true for any type of investor. And in that survey, we ask what are the major concerns when it comes to investment. And this year, we noticed that actually the whole question of liquidity was one of the top three major concerns among investors. And of course, this is a reflection of events like March 2020, US Tash for Cash, as they call it, or the September 2022 UK liability-driven investment crisis, which, as you might remember, temporarily disrupted the, the treasury and guild market. So when, when the topic was discussed at the seminar, in particular, the focus was, of course, on the US treasury market, given the fact that this is, the, I would say, the most important bond market in the world, and I would consider basically uh, systemic. And uh, more than 70% of the respondents say that they are worried about falling liquidity in uh, in that market. And actually more than 90% mention also falling liquidity in private markets as a major cause uh, of concern. We therefore decided that we wanted to really pull together some thoughts and we involve also as well our colleagues from the investment banking, which of course are very knowledgeable about the bond market. And when we start to think about liquidity, of course, we realize that the, the concept of liquidity is a multifaceted concept. You can talk about liquidity at the macro level, think about the whole switch from quantitative easing to quantitative tightening. You can talk about liquidity at market level, which basically relates to the functioning of, of markets. And sometimes we call it a transactional liquidity, which is basically the, the question about the ability of investors to buy and sell security without basically causing a shift in the price. And then, of course, we had also some discussion about liquidity during the event surrounding the mid-sized bank in the US. As you know, in that market, we saw as a result of rising interest rates, we saw a migration from the deposit towards the money market funds. And actually, this was one of the trigger as well that created some liquidity issues in the bond market. Last but not least, of course, I already mentioned that the, also the, question, the whole question of liquidity in private market, which has been a big trend among investors over the last years, is also being put under the radar screen of many or many investors. What basically all these different aspects of liquidity, of course, refer to different mechanisms and different processes. 
But I believe that uh, one major conclusion that comes from the paper is that uh, the sort of common denominator factor is the volatility in the market, which uh, creates uh, liquidity events across all these different dimensions. And that's exactly the focus of the paper, particularly when we talk about the US Treasury market uh, is in fact uh, on liquidity. So we're going to release the paper in a few days uh, and uh, I'm sure that there will be a lot of interest from investors for this particular topic. Yeah, definitely be interested to to check it out. It's quite striking when 70% of your sovereign investors say that they're worried about falling liquidity in the US Treasury market. We'll come on to private markets in a minute, but I just want to back up and ask historically, how have institutional investors balanced the need for liquidity with their desire for higher returns? And how has this evolved over the past decade? Yeah, for investor liquidity is very, very important. Of course, each investor is different, but generally speaking, when we talk to institutional investor, we divide institutional investor into into main groups. The one who are uh, in some way are constrained by liquidity, so they cannot invest in uh, so-called illiquid market, which is a broad term for private markets. So basically they stick to bonds and uh, listed equity. And on the other end, instead there are investors, for instance, in my area, the typical example is the saving fund, which have a very long-term investment horizon and they tend to have less liquid constraints. So they are the one who can allocate a, a substantial part of their portfolio towards uh, this type of uh, asset classes. It, to do a little bit of history, when we were in the previous regime, because I think by now we can call it like that, in the sense that we are definitely in a new regime, this uh, regime was characterized by the very low-yield environment. So it was very difficult for investors to generate uh, adequate return in, uh, in the fixed income market. So a major trend has been, in fact, the move away from uh, fixed income towards uh, more risky asset classes. And when we talk about risky asset classes, fundamentally, there are two candidates. One, of course, is listed equity. And in fact, we saw many investors diversifying towards the equity market. For instance, in in the case of my client segment, central banks, which were traditional investors in fixed income market, have actually been starting to diversify into listed equity. But the overall major trend was the shift towards illiquid market. And of course, this is something that has really increased the amount, the flow of investment into these asset classes. And actually, this worked very well. I mean, private markets over the, in the previous regime provided a very good return together with listed equity. So investors have been very well compensated from this, uh, this switch. On the other end, it's also true that in the previous regime, probably also as a result of the huge liquidity which was injected by central banks around the world. I don't, probably there has been a little bit of, a, of an underestimation of the, the liquidity of these alternative asset classes. I mean, as you know, in our jargon, we talk about liquid, semi-liquid. So there are different definitions of liquidity in private markets. But the reality is that uh, the, these markets are characterized by the fact that you cannot sell these assets very quickly. Sometimes you need days or in other case, for instance, in private equity, you, you, you need months. So that's something that, of course, has in some way maybe surprised uh, some of the investors who have been uh, pouring money into this asset class. Say that is very interesting as we move into the new regime, which is characterized by higher yields. We have not seen among our investors, the one who already invested into alternative, a sort of a 
dramatic uh, weakening uh, of uh, demand for these asset classes. And this is very important because uh, despite the liquid nature of these asset classes, I believe that uh, alternative asset classes have become uh, mainstream in the sense that nowadays, uh, if you think about the uh, real estate market or uh, private equity, these are very large uh, markets where, uh, which is attracting uh, a broader range of uh, investor. And also these asset classes have uh, matured uh, quite a lot in the sense that the, the price discovery mechanism, as we call it, has improved. And that's something which I think is also a testament to where we are in the, in the investment uh, landscape. Alternative are, are not going away as a trend because of their illiquid nature, but I think that probably the value proposition of alternative asset classes will have to be revised to reflect the fact, of course, that uh, the return that you can generate in public market, particularly in fixed import, are much higher in the new regime. Great. I definitely want to come back to the valuation point in private markets in just a second. But to zoom out to the macro aspect, which you mentioned, central banks' asset purchasing programs since the global financial crisis have contributed to an excess of liquidity in the financial system. But now as they look to wind down their balance sheets and and uh, have started winding down their balance sheets, how do you anticipate that quantitative tightening will impact liquidity? And what do you see as the implications for investors? Yeah, in terms of the, I will focus maybe on the treasury market, which of course is the is the most important one, as we said at the beginning. Sure. I mean, for 20 years, basically almost 20 years, the treasury market has been supported by, let's say something that I could call uh, a couple of visible ends, which uh, which probably now are in part are reversing. The first one is, of course, the China decision taken a um, few decades ago to build up the stocks of U.S. Treasury. And that's one. The second one is what you mentioned exactly, the quantitative easing program in response to the global financial crisis. Of course, uh, now things are changing. I will uh, briefly touch upon China. But as you know, uh, the, the China economy, uh, first of all, is, uh, is slowing down. We also see a slowdown in the buildup of reserve uh, within China. And from this point of view, we can expect that we cannot expect to see the same flow of Chinese reserve into the U.S. Treasury market as we saw it in the previous regime. Also interesting, some more recent data point to a, an additional slowdown in the holding of the U.S. Treasury by the Central Bank of China. And I believe there are also other factors at play, for instance, the diversification away from the U.S. dollar, largely driven by geopolitical concern. When I pull all together all these factors, probably we can expect a lower flow, as I said, of funds from China into the U.S. Treasury market. Turning to the quantitative easing, I mean, the quantitative easing has probably been the defining factor of the pre-pandemic years when the main goal of the Fed and over leading central bank was uh, to support the growth and fight deflation, together with very low interest rate. As you pointed out in your introductory remark, we had uh, a huge amount of liquidity flowing into global markets. Now, QTE is expected to reverse QE. However, I would say there is still a lot of uncertainty over the true impact on liquidity and, of course, also on interest rate. In fact, we should not forget that quantitative easing happened in an era of low inflation and very low and steady interest rate. For instance, according to some estimates, the QE contributed about 50 basis points to reduce the long-term interest rate. Now, you might expect eventually QT to uh, have a sort of a symmetric effect, of course, uh, in the other direction. 
But in reality, there is uh, uh, still a lot of uncertainty because, of course, the condition have changed. We are no longer in a low inflationary environment and we are no longer in a low interest rate environment. Now, from that point of view, I believe that we are going to see some impact. As I said, very difficult to uh, quantify the magnitude of this impact. The only example that we have, we had a sort of a mini QT, which started when uh, the Fed uh, wanted to, to start, uh, as you might remember a few years back, uh, to uh, reduce its balance sheet. Unfortunately, it was very short-lived because then uh, the pandemic hit and, of course, this, uh, this decision was reverted and we went back to the injection of liquidity market. So from that point of view, there is no doubt that QT will have an impact. As I said, difficult to quantify, but we basically what we are going to see, and here is the implication for investment, that... Uh, this big buyer, which has been present in markets for a very long time, is no longer there and actually is there to withdraw uh, liquidity from market via quantitative tightening. I think investors are looking at this uh, very closely. And I, I was surprised, for instance, when if I can give a, an example of the how investors are looking at this, is that, for instance, some big institutional investors started to appoint liquidity officer. So, so, you know, normally you have strategists, chief economists, uh, maybe you have also political uh, spe policy specialists, but actually it's the first time that I hear that there is someone looking very closely at the liquidity of the different markets. I believe that's something wise because uh, when you invest, particularly for the long term, and you have certain liquidity requirements, which, which of course depends on which type of investor you are, it is also very important to have a, a view on, uh, on liquidity itself. Right. Thanks so much for outlining the two visible hands uh, from coming from the buy side in China and QE, which were contributing to a lot of liquidity in the treasury market over the past decade and a half. Philip, I'd like to come now to you, since we've been talking about the U.S. treasury market. A major concern has been liquidity in fixed income markets and, and the U.S. treasury market in particular. Can you summarize some of the major conclusions of the paper on this? Absolutely. So. Our colleagues in the investment bank, they, they started quite a comprehensive exercise early in the year when they looked into liquidity in the U.S. Treasury market specifically. And we decided to make that one of the, the sections in our liquidity paper, because as Max mentioned uh, in our annual reserve management survey, transaction liquidity in fixed income markets was identified as one of the major pain points. It was already a topic in the years before, but it got particularly bad in 2022, and therefore it jumped to the top of the list of worries in our survey. Now, the, the analysis compared in, in particular the period in late 2022 with the, the, with the situation that prevailed for the 10 to 12 years before. And they found some quite interesting stats that really describe how bad the situation actually was and in many cases still is. For example, the, the average bid offer spread in, in treasuries was around 0.4 basis points over the last 12 years. But during 2022, it then jumped to 1.2 basis points, so three times more. And when you look at the derivatives market specifically, for example, daily trading volumes over the last 12 years, they more or less stayed broadly the same when you combine futures and options. But the average price per move, um, uh, the, the average move per day of five ticks in both directions that we had 12 years ago, that will now increase to, to 15 ticks per day in late 2022. So you can really say that the bid, uh, the bid ask spread in, in the daily in this data sample was um, three times wider and also the average price move was three times larger when you compare it with the time before the pandemic. 
And also, if you look at stuff like, for example, um, an index that Bloomberg calculates, which is the, the government securities liquidity index, which is basically something that measures the, uh, the basis point gap between what is actually traded in the market and it compares to the, the model that Bloomberg calculates, a uh, relative value of curve fitting model. Also there, we started with one basis point 12 years ago, then we went to after the Euro crisis and then after the first Fed hikes in 2015, we went to two basis points. And now after the pandemic, we are at, at three basis points. So of course, during periods of stress, this can be still much wider than 20 basis points during the, the great financial crisis. But what is really interesting is this relative widening during, during periods of, of relative calm in the markets. Now, there's also some, some other acad academic research that deals with this topic. For example, Michael Fleming at the New York Fed has written quite extensively about that. And he has looked in addition at the depth of the order book and also the price impact of, of transacting large orders. And also for these factors, um, there was clear deteriorations uh, since the pandemic. The order book depths for the, for the two-year and five-year notes in, in late 2022 it was just one quarter of what we had before the pandemic. And also the order book depths in the, in the really important uh, 10 years uh, was only about, it was two thirds less than what we had 2019. And Michael Fleming also then has an interesting analysis where he looks at the, uh, at the impact of transacting large orders, uh, of, of transacting 100 million orders in treasuries in different years. And also here, um, if we define liquidity as the ability to transact without impacting the price, one has to say that the conditions in late 2022 and the one years and two years and five years, they were, um, you guessed it already by now, they were three times worse than in the, in the years prior to the pandemic. Uh, so the price impact was three times greater. So um, it really seems that this three times worse is something of a magic number that we had, uh, that we found several times in this, in this analysis. So I think it is fair to say that liquidity and in, in all the possible measures has deteriorated over the last decade. And the deterioration has also then accelerated with the onset of the pandemic. Now, why all of this has really happened? I think that would be part of an, of an even, even longer analysis. But the main question is really, is, is this a deterioration in the functionality of the treasury market itself? Or is it more the result of an exceptional volatility and, and market circumstances that we had during that time? Now, over the full 12 years, it, it might probably have been a mixture of both, but in particular, the, the dramatic deterioration since the pandemic might really probably be more a, a consequence of, of high volatility and of a, of a difficult market environment. Because there's no real technical reason why investors should find it now harder to transact treasuries since the pandemic started. But the market might simply be, be less willing to transfer treasury risk when there are so many moving parts and so much uncertainty there with the fastest Fed hiking cycle ever and the surge in inflation and QT and the looming recession and then geopolitical conflicts. So um, we will see how all of this plays out when, when volatility subsides again. But um, for that, of course, uh, a lot of things would first have to, have to stabilize. Great. Thanks, Philip. It's really helpful to, to hear it laid out at the macro level, market level, and transactional level. And it sounds like it's certainly worth watching liquidity and, and all of those aspects. Just to come now to private markets, as we discussed that a bit before, Max, you mentioned that private markets have offered a illiquidity premium 
over the past several decades and that institutional investors have looked to increase their exposure in these asset classes. How are they adjusting now to higher yields and how is this impacting their valuations? Yeah, I mean, the rise, basically, as, as, as you pointed out correctly, the rising yields reduce the liquidity premium that investor can generate uh, by investing into alternative asset classes such as real estate and uh, private equity. Now, the point is that while public markets have already adjusted to the higher interest rate environment, alternative asset classes, NAVs, adjust with a delay of uh, sometimes it can also be delayed of several quarters. There is therefore uh, not surprising that there is a lot of interest, uh, for instance, among regulators about this aspect. And in fact, there is a quite a big policy drive to look at the so-called non-banking sector, which is largely composed of alternative asset uh, managers. Ultimately, while semi-liquid mechanisms have been developed for private market, it is important to remember that these assets, compared to the public markets, are more difficult to dispose of. And this is true whether it is, a, I don't know, an office building or an airport or a stake, for instance, in an unlisted company. So from that point of view, the challenge is that during a period of market stress, the level of activity in both the primary and the secondary market to reduce, and so the transaction time is extended. Now, our findings, also by talking to clients, we survey some of the of our clients on that, is that actually the investor, as I already pointed out, has been pretty sanguine about the current situation. What does it mean? In the sense that, uh, of course, they see the, the price value discovery phase that we are in, which is this adjustment, this delay adjustment in the NAV of these asset classes. But uh, in a certain way, they, they see things developing as you would expect, given the illiquid nature of these asset classes. So basically, they are confident that once the NAV have been adjusted to the current level of interest rate, then eventually the liquidity, uh, as uh, for instance, a measure by bid ask spreads, will eventually go back uh, to, to normal level. Now, it's very interesting also to think about how this NAV adjustment in private markets and also what happened in public market impact institutional investor. There is something that we call in the jargon the so called denominator effect, which is when the markets come down in particular the public markets, which react uh, faster than private market. Of course, what happened is that uh, some investors find themselves with an allocation to private market, which is higher than it was before. And sometimes they have certain liquidity guidelines, which would force them to eventually dispose alternative asset classes, basically to bring back the share in their asset allocation allocated to liquid asset classes to the level which is uh, allowed by the guidelines. Now, of course, this is very important because probably we had some of that in particular in 2022 when the public markets corrected as a result of the increase in interest rate. Still, when we talk to clients, they they feel that we are not, uh, for instance, anywhere close to what we experienced in uh, 2008, for example. And this is very important to keep in mind. 2008 uh, crisis, was generated by a dramatic drop in the underlying asset value. Basically, in the case, it was the real estate market in the US. This time around, instead, the price discovery phase that we are in is not driven by a drop in asset values, but is actually driven by the higher yields environment we are in. So from that point of view, as I said, the investors are sanguine in the sense that they are just looking at this adjustment as you would expect given the new interest rate environment we are in.
Now, looking ahead, of course, the big risk is that if, for instance, uh, central banks are perceived to lose the, the control of inflation and they are forced to increase interest rates more aggressively, this, of course, could have a more, a more negative impact on the real estate and the private equity sector. Maybe very quickly, just to mention, because sometimes when we talk about alternative asset classes, as I said, we talk, talk about something which includes a very different asset classes. The two main ones are real estate and uh, and private equity. Now, in the in the real estate market, uh, periodically liquidity are pretty normal, and the reason is that that, that first of all, uh, the valuation methodology are backward looking. So it basically takes time to incorporate within the NAV value of the funds where investor invest the new level of of asset price. Secondly, many funds do not uh, usually hold uh, enough cash to fulfill the redemption. That's another uh, part of the conversation, for instance, which is of great interest to regulators and policymakers, because that's exactly the type of uh, situation that we face in some cases over the last 18 months. But we should not forget that uh, gating, when basically you stop redemption, is also a way to protect investors in the sense that uh, if uh, the asset manager, the real estate asset manager, were forced to sell because of redemption, they, they would be forced to sell at a price which is probably lower than what is the actual price in the market. In a, and that, of course, in the end is detrimental to the investor themselves. Turning to private equity, just to finish on this point, is that the concept of liquidity there is different in the sense that uh, this, this sector is driven by transaction in the primary market. The secondary market is, uh, is only emerging as we speak and currently at a very low volume around, for instance, 100, 110 billion compared with a total of around 9 trillion in the private equity market. So from that point of view, definitely private equity is uh, where we are still seeing uh, this price discovery phase uh, unfolding. And uh, of course, this will, uh, will continue, we think, uh, for a few quarters. While instead, in the real estate market, the price uh, adjustment has already started in the middle of 2022, and we believe we are not far away from the end of this process. Great. Well, thanks so much, Max and Philip. It's been a pleasure. We've covered a lot, and there are certainly many aspects to look out for in the upcoming publication of UBS, so be sure to check that out. Thank you as well to our listeners, and be sure to subscribe to our podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever podcasts are available. Thank you both. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the OMFIF podcast.